We continue in our introductory series, introducing Genesis. Again, this is not my exposition of Genesis. This is the groundwork we're laying before we get to Genesis 1-1 properly. This is the introduction to the introduction to the introduction to the introduction of Genesis 1-1. There are giants in the land, dear saints. If you are a reader of Pilgrim's Progress or a modern listener of Pilgrim's Progress, you know that Pilgrim faced a giant, the giant despair. There are giants in the land in this day, and they do cause many to despair, many to fear, many to pull back, like Goliath of old caused the army of God to pull back and to cower. The Goliath of our day and his brothers are naturalism, Big Bang cosmology, and evolution. Or you could sum it all up with one giant. If there is a Goliath, it's giant atheist. And so much of the church, sadly, tragically, is cowering before giant atheism. And his brothers, naturalism, Big Bang cosmology, and evolution. These giants have been unleashed in the land. And the church is trembling before them. The church stands in the full armor of God. The church has the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, strapped to its side, in the sheath, refusing to unsheath and wield the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. Because before the fight even started, they allowed giant atheism, giant naturalism, giant Big Bang cosmology, and giant evolution to steal their faith in the Word of God and render it useless in its scabbard. So they leave it hanging as if it's an ancient mythical relic around their waist. Rather than unsheathing God's holy, inspired, inerrant, preserved, and authoritative word and slaying these giants with one little blow. One little blow shall fell them. As Luther wrote in his great hymn. Dear saints, the title of the message is Slaying Atheist Myths, subtitled Placing the Mythological Shoe on the Right Foot. I wasn't satisfied with placing the mythological shoe on the right foot. I like it. But saints, we need to do violence to these giants. They need to be slain. We're not merely shifting a shoe to the right foot. Slain atheist myths, placing the mythological shoe on the right foot. We have allowed these blasphemous giants, not just into Christ's church, but to become the authority in Christ's church. The authority over thus saith the Lord. And it's shameful. It is shameful. May God grant repentance and revival in faith. In His inspired, inerrant, preserved, and authoritative word from the very first verse. It really comes down to that. Do we believe giant atheism, giant naturalism, giant Big Bang cosmology, and giant evolution? Or do we believe God, the creator of the cosmos? If He is not the creator of the cosmos, He is not God. If Genesis 1 and 2 are not true, then neither is anything that follows after. And saints, it is true. And all the arguments of men, all the theories of men, all the sciences falsely so-called of men brought to bear against God's holy word from Genesis 1-1 to Revelation 22 are lies. Lies. Set against our God. Lies coming forth from a heart that is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. The 
heart of mankind. And so slain atheist myths. From last time, we covered this point, slaying the Genesis 1 through 11 is inspired myth, myth. Slaying the Genesis 1 through 11, chapters 1 through 11, right? Creation to the Tower of Babel. Creation, the fall, the flood, it's all in there. And those that would reject God's creation account as being the literal historical account of God creating the heavens and the earth tend to reject Genesis is a literal historical book all the way up through the end of chapter 11. And they jump in to chapter 12 and say, ah, history has begun, Abraham. The only problem you might find with this is that the entirety of God's Word upholds Genesis 1 and 2 as literal and historical. And chief amongst the testimony of God's Word is the Lord Jesus Christ Himself and His testimony found in the Gospels. You cannot dismiss Genesis 1 and 2 as the literal historical account of God creating the heavens and the earth without dismissing the entirety of God's Word. You cannot make Genesis 1 and 2 or Genesis 1 through 11 myth without making the entirety of God's Word myth. If you pick up in Genesis 12 and say, ah, now we have historical, inscripturated, factual, truthful, non-mythological scripture. You need only keep turning the page until you get to Exodus chapter 20. Anyone know what's in Exodus 20? The law, I preach it all the time because the law is perfect, converting the soul. Exodus 20, right in the midst of the law, in verse 11, we find this. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in them and rested the seventh day. Right in the middle of the law of God. Well past Genesis 11. In Exodus. Written with the finger of God on two tablets of stone given to Moses on Mount Sinai. We find this. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in them and rested the seventh day. Oh, dear saints of God, to dismiss God's creative act is to dismiss God's word in its entirety. His law, his gospel, all of it. Oh, these giants must be slain. They must be slain. And saints, a boy with a stone and the faith of David could slay all these giants. Slain ancient myths. The first one last week, slain the Genesis 1 through 11 is inspired myth. Myth. Exodus 20 verse 11 alone slays that myth, but you'll have to go back and listen to last week's message to get the entirety of that point. Secondly, slain the Charles Darwin was an unbiased observer who made the scientific discovery of evolution myth. Charles Darwin was not an unbiased observer who made a real scientific discovery of evolution. No man is unbiased. No man is unbiased. Who was Charles Darwin? Turn to Romans 3. Let me introduce you to Charles Darwin. Romans 3 verse 9. What then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks that they are all under sin. That's all of humanity. Under sin. Dead. Under sin, bound up, under sin. Verse 10, as it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good, no, not one. Their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues they have practiced deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood, destruction, and misery are in their ways, and the way of peace they have not known. Hear this final point from verse 18. There is no fear of God before their eyes. That is Charles Darwin. That is every unregenerate man and woman. 
and it most certainly accurately describes the character, nature, and life of Charles Darwin. He was no unbiased observer making scientific discovery. He was utterly and wholly and absolutely biased against God. He hated his creator. And he ground his axe against his creator all his life. Where else do you find him? You find him in Ephesians chapter 2. Keep turning to the right. Ephesians chapter 2. Introducing Charles Darwin to you as a biased observer. Grinding his axe against God. Ephesians 2 verse 1. And you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. Charles Darwin was a child of wrath. Charles Darwin was fulfilling the lust of his flesh, fulfilling the desires of his flesh. He was by nature a child of wrath, serving, serving the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. Charles Darwin was a son of disobedience, serving the prince of the power of the air, the devil himself living out his love of his own sins and justifying his sins by assaulting his creator. Charles Darwin was no unbiased observer. Where else is he found in the Word of God? Well, we could go on and on, but at least one more place. Psalm 14.1. If you haven't read through the Psalms, I encourage you to do so regularly. But what you find all throughout the Psalms is the psalmist praising God, our Creator, and extolling the glories of His creative act and His power and His wisdom. But here in Psalm 14.1, it says, The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They have done abominable works. There is none who does good. Charles Darwin is the fool of Psalm 14.1. And those who bow before Darwin's theory, become fools with him. How dare we drag such foolishness into Christ's church and subjugate God's word beneath it? The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. You must understand, Charles Darwin was not aiming simply to follow the observable facts scientifically wherever they led, and thus he ended up, lo and behold, shocker, in the realm of atheism. No, Charles Darwin rejected God. Charles Darwin was a God-hater. Charles Darwin followed his sinful heart and read the evidence according to the dictates of his sinful heart, not as an unbiased observer, but as an entirely, wholly, completely biased sinner. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt When Charles Darwin was conceived, he was corrupt. When he was born, he was corrupt. When he lay in the cradle, he was corrupt. When he walked that first step, when he said his first word, he was corrupt, as are all men. They are corrupt. They've done abominable works. I would wager you don't know of Charles Darwin's abominable works as you ought to. You don't comprehend you have not considered his abominable works most men have not considered at all the abominable work of charles darwin and the abominable works of other evil men that he unleashed upon humanity they are corrupt they've done abominable works there is none who does good charles darwin's biased sinful rebellious foolish observations as recorded in his book, The Origin of the Species, are abominable works that unleashed the abominable works of Stalin and Hitler and a great many other evil men upon humanity. They are corrupt. 
They've done abominable works. There is none who does good. Outside of the grace of God and the power of the Spirit of God, we do not do good. And saints, the evidence is in. You want evidence? You want repeatable, observable, scientific evidence? Darwin's theory of evolution has reaped a whirlwind of destruction. Everywhere it has prevailed. All you need to do is introduce it into a new environment and you can repeat that and observe that whirlwind once again. A biblical introduction to Charles Darwin is a wholly biased observer who made unscientific declarations regarding the myth of evolution. I want to walk you through his life briefly. I'll try to speak fast in this. You try to listen fast. Charles Robert Darwin was born February 12, 1809 in Shrewsbury, England to a wealthy family. Darwin's mother, Susanna, died in 1817 when he was eight. Darwin joined his brother Erasmus at the University of Edinburgh to study medicine in the fall of 1825. During his second year of medical school, Darwin began a friendship with Robert Grant who explained to him the evolutionary ideas of the mark. You must understand that the theory of evolution was not original to Darwin. He popularized it. He promoted it. And many men got behind him and helped popularize and promote his take on evolution. But it was not original to him. In the spring of 1827, Darwin left medical school and entered Christ College at Cambridge in the winter of 1827 to study for the clergy His brother Erasmus was also there to finish his schooling in medicine. Darwin did not take to his studies. He didn't take them seriously. He spent his time collecting beetles and reading Shakespeare. In 1828, Darwin was introduced to Reverend John Stevens Henslow. Darwin took a strong interest in Henslow's lectures and began thinking of a career in the natural sciences. The Reverend was an early evolutionist. From 1829, Darwin doubted his career as a clergyman and did not take his studies seriously. In 1831, Darwin passed his exams and later attended geology lectures from Adam Sedgwick. Professor Sedgwick gave Darwin a crash course in field geology in the summer. In August of 1831, Darwin was invited to be the naturalist aboard the HMS Beagle, an offer he readily accepted. He would go on a five year global tour on the HMS Beagle. While aboard the Beagle, Darwin read Principles of Geology by Charles Lyell. This book promoted an old age uniformitarian view of geology. Again, a false science, a false understanding of God's creation. The Beagle was on a surveying mission that allowed Darwin time to venture inland in South America and other stops. He detailed the geology of these areas in his journals. Darwin collected many specimens of birds, animals, fish, and fossils and had them shipped back to Cambridge along with his journals. The Beagle sailed up the coast of South America, eventually reaching the Galapagos Islands in September of 1835. They remained there until November, setting sail then for Tahiti. After stops in Tahiti, New Zealand, Australia, Africa, as well as many other stops, they returned to England in October of 1936, where Darwin began to study his, his journals and the specimens he had sent back and brought back with him. Darwin interacted with many members of the scientific elite of his day, including Charles Lyell, Richard Owen, Charles Babbage, while his specimens were being studied by various naturalists. In 1837, John Gould concluded that the bird species that Darwin found in the Galapagos Islands were all finches with beak variations. Darwin began to formulate his ideas on change within and between species based upon finches that were all finches with various beaks. So changes within and between species based upon variation within a species or kind. Fearing that his idea of transmutation, meaning from one species to another, would be considered heretical, Darwin kept his ideas relatively private. Darwin began experiencing more serious stomach and heart problems that plagued him for the remainder of his life. More serious because they started at 16. In 1839, Darwin married his cousin, Emma Wedgwood. 
Receiving a small fortune from the family, Darwin took on a reclusive lifestyle to avoid triggering his many health problems. Charles Darwin and his bride, Emma, had eight children. Three died at various stages of life, one of which, Annie or Anne, he was very close to. It was a devastating loss. Darwin completed his book, On the Origin of Species, by means of natural selection, and it was published November 22, 1859. Thomas Huxley and Joseph Hooker took up the cause of Darwin and promoted his ideas and journals, influencing many in the scientific community. Richard Owen and William Wilberforce, recognize that name, famous for what? Fighting slavery. William Wilberforce fought fiercely against the Darwinian ideas, specifically on the grounds of morality and biblical truths. By 1863, Origin had been translated into French, German, Dutch, and Italian. It's spreading the known world. April 19, 1882, Charles Darwin died at Down House. He was buried in Westminster Abbey, and he is now considered a national hero to most of Great Britain. His face was on the 10-pound note for some time, recently taken off, I suspect, due to the fact that Charles Darwin was a racist, and that became known on a broader level. That's a brief introduction to Charles Darwin's life. What's his legacy, Darwin's legacy? Ken Ham says this, In 1859, from his home near the small village of Down, England, Charles Darwin wrote The Origin of the Species. This book popularized the idea that life could be explained by natural processes without God. A few years later, Darwin published the book A Descent of Man, applying his evolutionary ideas to the origin of man and postulating that mankind evolved from ape-like ancestors. From this house spread a philosophy that attacked the authority of God's Word in Genesis, the foundational history for all Christian doctrine, including the Gospel, and in fact, for the entire Bible. This fact is clearly illustrated by a quote in the Holmes' final exhibit, which is mounted on top of the silhouetted text of Genesis. This is in his home. It reads, quote, Many Christians believed that the world and everything in it, including mankind, had been created by God in the beginning and had remained unaltered ever since. Darwin's theory made nonsense of all this. It made it myth. He said that the world was constantly changing and that all living creatures were changing too. Far from being created in God's own image, Darwin suggested that human life had probably started out as something far more primitive. The story of Adam and Eve was a myth. This is on the plaque over Genesis in Darwin's home. The story of Adam and Eve was a myth. How dare professing Christians attempt to make peace with Darwin's theory of evolution and the Word of God? The quote above, Kinham continues, the quote above sums up the legacy of Darwin. His ghost has spread around the world, and it is totally consistent with what Darwin himself wrote in his autobiography. Darwin's words, quote, I had gradually come by this time to see that the Old Testament from its manifestly false history of the world, with the Tower of Babel, the rainbow as a sign, etc., etc., from its attributing to God the feelings of a revengeful tyrant was no more to be trusted than the sacred books of the Hindus or the beliefs of any barbarian. In other words, Darwin is quite clear that his theory of evolution wasn't just an unbiased observation of what was before him. It was born out of a heart at enmity with God. He set himself up as judge over the judge. Close to the end of Darwin's life, he wrote this private message to his family, intending that it be read after his death. Quote, I can indeed hardly see how anyone ought to wish Christianity to be true. For if so, the plain language of the text seems to show that the men who do not believe, and this would include my father, brother, and almost all my best friends, will be everlastingly punished. And this is a damnable doctrine. As I have been telling you now for the past two weeks, the men 
who reject Genesis and prefer Big Bang cosmology and evolution also tend to be the men who reject a literal hell. The men who set themselves up as judges over God's creative act also set themselves up as judges over God's damning act in sending sinners to hell. And yet these men want us to accept them as Christians. I do not. If you reject Genesis and you reject Revelation, I do not accept you as a Christian. Neither will the Lord Jesus Christ. One step further in introducing you to Charles Darwin. In an article titled, Was Charles Darwin Psychotic? A Study of His Mental Health by Dr. Jerry Bergman. We find that indeed the answer to that question was yes. Darwin's many lifelong and serious illnesses have been the subject of much speculation and study for over a century. Darwin stated that his health problems began as early as 1825 when he was only 16 years old and became incapacitating around the age of 28. Dozens of scholarly articles and at least three books have been penned on the question of Darwin's illness. The current conclusion is that Darwin suffered from several serious and incapacitating psychiatric disorders, including agoraphobia. Agoraphobia is characterized by fear of panic attacks or actual panic attacks when not in a psychologically safe environment, such as at home. Darwin, as is common among agoraphobiacs, also developed many additional phobias, being in crowds, being alone, or leaving home unless accompanied by his wife. Agoraphobia is also frequently associated with depersonalization, a feeling of being detached from and outside of one's own body, a malady that Darwin also suffered. A study of Darwin's mental condition by Barloon and Noyes concluded that Darwin suffered from anxiety disorders that so severely impaired his functioning that it limited his ability to leave his home even just to meet with colleagues or other friends. Culp concluded that, quote, much of Darwin's daily life was lived on a rack which consisted of fluctuating degrees of pain that was sometimes so severe that Darwin called it, quote, distressingly great. Darwin's many psychological or psychologically influenced physical health symptoms included severe depression, insomnia, hysterical crying, dying sensations, shaking, fainting spells, muscle twitches, shortness of breath, trembling, nausea, vomiting, severe anxiety, depersonalization, seeing spots, treading on thin air and vision, and other visual hallucinations. The physical symptoms included headaches, cardiac palpitations, ringing in the ears, Painful flatulence and gastric upsets, all of which commonly have psychological origin. Some speculate that part of Darwin's mental problems were due to his nagging, gnawing fear that he had devoted his life to a fantasy, a dangerous one at that. This fear was that his theory was false and there was, in fact, a divine creator. Darwin's own wife argued that his mental problem stemmed from guilt over his life's goal to refute the argument for God from design. Darwin exhibited the obsessional trait of having to have everything just so. He kept meticulous records of his health and symptoms like many obsessional hypochondriacs. Days and nights were given a score according to how good they were. The score was added up at the end of each week. And there is evidence of frequent changing of mind in deciding whether a night was very good or just good. In addition to the diary on his health problems and complaints, he frequently discussed his health problems in his letters and his autobiography. Darwin's own description of his condition, including the following, I am forced to live very quietly and am able to see scarcely anybody and cannot even talk along with my nearest relations. These are the personal ramifications of suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. These are the personal ramifications of grinding your axe against your Creator. Another side of Darwin revealed his sadistic impulses. His own words taken from his autobiography give a vivid example. Quote, In the latter part of my school life, I became passionately fond of shooting and do not believe that anyone could have shown more zeal for the most holy cause than I did for shooting birds. How well I remember killing my first snipe and my excitement was so great that I had much difficulty in reloading my gun from the trembling of my hands. This taste long continued, and I became a very good shot. Now hear me, Darwin wasn't simply an avid hunter or sportsman. Darwin was a killer. 
It was the killing that he was passionate about. Darwin killed for the sheer delight of killing and kept disturbingly obsessive detailed notes on how many animals and birds he killed each day. Darwin was skilled with guns, but also honed his skill of rock throwing. He became joyously proficient at killing rabbits, birds, and other small critters with his rocks. He performed extensive experiments, particularly on rabbits, and referred to his study as his horror chamber, quote unquote. Darwin's passion for killing wasn't limited to guns and rocks. When the now famous HMS Beagle stopped along the Brazilian coast on the way to the Galapagos Islands, Darwin went ashore and bludgeoned countless birds to death with his geological hammer, saying, quote, he had a marvelous morning, whooping and killing birds with abandon, unquote. Darwin even brought several guns on his historic voyage and wrote about his sincere hope for a chance to kill cannibals, because from his worldview, they were a lesser species, worthy of killing at will for mere entertainment and study purposes. Charles Darwin's theory of evolution didn't just compel him to kill rabbits and birds, making him Snow White's worst nightmare. Darwin didn't just want to kill a few cannibals out of a sense of adventure. Something far more sinister was behind it. Darwin's theory spawned the worst racial eugenics, genocide monsters the world has ever known. The little-known, full title of Charles Darwin's world-changing 1859 book was On the Origin of the Species by Means of Natural Selection, or the Preservation of Favored Races in the Struggle for Life. Now, why do you think the second half of his title has been left off all these years. The preservation of favored races in the struggle of life. His second book, The Descent of Man, stoked the future fires of Nazi genocide with these words, quote, The Western nations of Europe now so immeasurably surpass their former savage progenitors that they stand at the summit of civilization. The civilized races of man will almost certainly exterminate and replace the savage races throughout the world. Thus, the scene before the world of Jesse Owens in the Olympics, defying Darwin and Adolf Hitler, who ascribed to Darwin's wicked worldview. How dare we bring that worldview into Christ's church? How dare we subjugate the word of God to giant atheism, giant naturalism, giant Big Bang cosmology, and giant Darwinian evolution? We must unsheathe the word of God and slay these abominable giants. Charles Darwin did not prove that he or any other man was a descendant of apes, but that he and every other man are fallen and sinful descendants of Adam. Slaying the Charles Darwin was an unbiased observer who made the scientific discovery of evolution myth. Oh, saints, it is slain. Third, Slaying the Big Bang cosmology and evolution are proven scientific facts, myths. Two for one point. No extra tithe required. The Big Bang. Slaying the Big Bang cosmology and evolution are proven scientific facts, myths. So many professing Christians and actual Christians cower before giant Big Bang cosmology and giant evolution because they're facts. That giant is real. And... That proves that the sword in my scabbard, the sword in my sheath is just a myth. And so I won't even bother to pull it from the sheath. I won't even bother to fight a good fight. How tragic. What is the truth regarding Big Bang cosmology? Dr. Monty White, British Dr. Monty White says... This, the Big Bang is the most prominent naturalistic view of the origin of the universe. In the same way that neo-Darwinian evolution is the naturalistic view of living systems, the difference between what the Bible teaches about the origin of the universe and what the evolutionists teach can be summed up as follows. The Bible teaches that, quote, in the beginning God created. Get a hold of that. 
There is the truth. The Bible teaches that in the beginning God created, and evolutionists teach, in essence, that in the beginning nothing became something and exploded. The Bible teaches that an infinitely powerful God with infinite wisdom created everything. And that, my friends, is what observation of creation tells us. To say that in the beginning nothing became something and exploded, that's not what we observe at all. That is a fiction. Dr. White continues, According to the Big Bang, our universe is supposed to have suddenly popped into existence and rapidly expanded and given rise to countless billions of galaxies with their countless billions of stars. Billions of galaxies, billions of stars from nothing. In support of the idea that nothing can give rise to the universe, cosmologists argue that quantum mechanics predicts that a vacuum can, under some circumstances, give rise to matter. Hear this. The problem with this line of reasoning is that a vacuum is not nothing. You're not starting with nothing when you start with a vacuum. It is something. It is a vacuum that can be made to appear or disappear. As in the case of the Torricellian vacuum, which is found at the sealed end of a mercury barometer. All logic predicts that if you have nothing, nothing will happen. It is against all known logic and all laws of science to believe that the universe is the product of nothing. This concept is similar to hoping that an empty bank account will suddenly give rise to billions of dollars on its own. However, if we accept that the universe and everything in it came from nothing and also from nowhere, then we have to follow this to its logical conclusion. This means that not only is all the physical material of the universe the product of nothing, but also other things. For example, we are forced to accept that nothing, which has no mind, no morals, and no conscience, right? Nothing has no mind, has no morals, and no conscience, that nothing created reason and logic, understanding and comprehension, complex ethical codes and legal systems, a sense of right and wrong, art, music, drama, comedy, literature, and dance, and belief systems that include God. Nothing created all of that. These are just a few of the philosophical implications of the Big Bang hypothesis. Oh, saints, John 1, 1 through 3. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were created through Him. Without Him, nothing was made that was made. That is the fact. Big Bang cosmology is the myth. Mark 10, verse 6, please, in your Bible. Mark 10, verse 6. It's quite simple, really. Jesus speaking, but from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Again, the Lord Jesus founding His position on divorce and remarriage on the beginning of creation when God made them male and female. And you'll notice in your Bible that made them male and female is in quotes because Jesus isn't coming up with this off the top of His head. The Lord Jesus is quoting Genesis chapter 1, verse 27 as literal, factual, historical truth regarding Adam and Eve being made in the beginning male and female. And thus God made one man and one woman to be brought together in holy matrimony for life. Oh, dear saints, this is fact. Big Bang cosmology and evolution are the fiction. God's word is true from the very first verse to the very last. And anything that contradicts it is the myth. How about evolution? We said two for one here. Big Bang cosmology and evolution. Now, mind you, I'm no scientist And even not being a scientist, I could give you messages on each of these points. Messages, not a five-minute point. There, There is so much fact because God's Word is true. There are solid scientists who have observed God's creation and see the truth clearly and report it quite scientifically with their own PhDs and qualifications. And so do your own research, but Big Bang cosmology is myth. The Word of God is fact. How about evolution? Slain. The Big Bang cosmology and evolution are proven scientific facts, myths. Dr. White continues, he says, it is commonly believed because it is taught in our schools and colleges that laboratory experiments have 
proved conclusively that living organisms evolve from non-living chemicals. And I run into this a lot when I'm evangelizing. They'll say, oh, that, they've done experiments. They've shown that this could happen by accident, that a, the necessary amino acid can form together and, and life could spontaneously combust out there, out of a material universe, naturalism. Many people believe that life has been created in the laboratory by scientists who study chemical evolution. The famous experiment conducted by Stanley Miller in 1953 is often quoted as proof of this. Yet the results of such experiments show nothing of the sort. These experiments designed as they are by intelligent humans. Do you get that? You have a very intelligent human, albeit heart deceitful above all things, desperately wicked, but a very intelligent human being in a lab with beakers and tubes and chemicals and mathematics. That belongs to God. All this intelligence being brought to bear upon the material elements in order to try to produce life. That's what Stanley Miller did in 1953. Yet the results of such experiments show nothing of the sort. These experiments, designed as they are by intelligent humans, show that under certain conditions, certain organic compounds can be formed from inorganic compounds. In fact, what the intelligent scientists are actually saying is, quote, if I can just synthesize life in the laboratory, then I will have proven that no intelligence was necessary to form life in the beginning. Does that make any logical sense? Their experiments are simply trying to prove the opposite, that an intelligence is required to create life. Do you get that? If they succeeded, if they truly succeeded, what will they have proved? That a lot of intelligence is necessary to produce life. And very controlled circumstances, a very controlled environment. But they did not succeed. If we look carefully at Miller's experiment, we will see that what he fails to address is the evolution of life. He took a mixture of gases, ammonia, hydrogen, methane, and water vapor, and he passed an electric current through them. He did this in order to reproduce the effect of lightning passing through a mixture of gases that he thought might have composed the atmosphere millions of years ago. As a result, he produced a mixture of amino acids because amino acids are the building blocks of proteins, and proteins are considered to be the building blocks of living systems. Miller's experiment was hailed as proof that life had evolved by chance on the earth millions of years ago, even though in that experiment nothing was left to chance at all. It was supposed to be proof that life evolved by chance. There are a number of objections to such a conclusion. First, there's no proof that the earth ever had an atmosphere composed of the gases used by Miller in his experiment. There's no proof of that at all. Second, the oxygen problem. The next problem is that in Miller's experiment, he was careful to make sure there was no oxygen present. Again, a very controlled environment. If oxygen was present, then the amino acids would not form. However, if oxygen was absent from the earth, then there would be no ozone layer. And if there was no ozone layer, the ultraviolet radiation would penetrate the atmosphere and would destroy the amino acids as soon as they were formed. So the dilemma facing the evolutionist can be summed up this way. Amino acids would not form in an atmosphere with oxygen, and amino acids would be destroyed in an atmosphere without oxygen. We could stop there and show that this experiment has failed. But after the oxygen problem, there's the right-handed problem. The next problem concerns the so-called handedness of the amino acids. Because of the way that carbon atoms join up with other atoms, amino acids exist in two forms, the right-handed form and the left-handed form. Just as your right hand and left hand are identical in all respects except for their handedness, so the two forms of amino acids are identical except for their handedness. In all living systems, only left-handed amino acids are found. Hear that. In all living systems, only left-handed amino acids are found. Any lefties in here today? Ah, clearly the superior race. Yet Miller's experiment produced a mixture of right-handed and left-handed amino acids in identical proportions. As only the left-handed ones are used in living systems, this mixture is useless for the evolution of living systems. It could not become life. It's impossible. So the oxygen problem renders the experiment null and void. The right-handed problem renders the experiment null and void. And third, the information problem. Another major problem for the 
chemical evolutionist, is the origin of the information that is found in living systems. There are various claims about the amount of information that is found in the human genome, but it can be conservatively estimated as being equivalent to a few thousand books, each several hundred pages long. Imagine that stacked up. That's just what makes up you as far as information. A few thousand books, hundreds of pages long each. Where did this information come from? Chance does not generate information. This observation caused the late professor, Sir Fred Hoyle, and his late colleague of Cardiff University, to conclude that the evolutionist is asking us to believe that a tornado can pass through a junkyard and assemble a jumbo jet. Now, mind you, the jumbo jet would have to be self-healing and reproducing. So a jumbo jet is far simpler than a human being. Far simpler. Dear saints, evolution does not explain the origin of life. It does not explain the origin of life. Evolution did not and does not happen. Giant evolution is slain by the word of God and true observation of God's creation. So first, we've seen the Genesis 1-11 through is inspired myth, myth, slain. Secondly, we've slain that Charles Darwin was an unbiased observer who made the scientific discovery of evolution myth. Third, we've slain the big Bang, cosmology, and evolution are proven scientific facts, myths. And fourth, slain, the natural selection produced complex life myth. This is an important one. Slain, the natural selection produced complex life myth. Also known as the goo-to-you myth, or the molecule-to-man myth, or the goo-to-the-zoo-to-you myth. Slain, the natural selection produced complex life myth. Myth. Genesis 1.26, the word of God, one little word shall fell them. Let us make man in our image. Verse 27, male and female, he created them. Add to it Proverbs 20, verse 12. The hearing ear and the seeing eye, the Lord has made them both. And as hard as evolutionists work, the hearing ear and the seeing eye are evolutionary impossibilities. Their attempts at explaining how the ear and the eye evolved are myths. The word of God is true. The hearing ear and the seeing eye, the Lord has made them both. Charles Darwin wrote this in his book, The Origin of the Species. Quote, the eye could evolve by natural selection seems, I freely confess, absurd in the highest possible degree. And he was right. Because God's word is true. Darwin's theory is myth. Evolution is myth. Natural selection producing complex life is myth. Because God's word is true. Dr. Georgia Purdom will help us further slay the natural selection produces complex life myth. She has a Ph.D. in molecular genetics from Ohio State University, which I love. I do wonder if they knew what she was going to do with her Ph.D., if they would have allowed her to continue in her program. Dr. Georgia Purdom writes this, When discussing natural selection as a possible mechanism for evolution, it is important to define terms. Evolutionists and biblical creationists view these terms differently, but it comes down to how we interpret the evidence in light of our foundation. Do we view natural selection using God's word as our foundation, or do we use man's truth as our foundation? In other words, do we have a biblical worldview? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Or do we have an atheistic, naturalistic, Big Bang cosmology, evolutionary worldview, thus... We come to creation, we come to the evidences, and we interpret them according to our worldview. The creationist view of natural selection is supported biblically and scientifically. Natural selection is a God-ordained process that allows organisms to survive in a post-fall, post-flood world. It is an observable reality that occurs in the present and takes advantage of the variations within kinds and works to preserve the genetic viability of the kinds. In other words, the Lord has created within each kind the ability 
to deviate from center, if you will. If over here helps that kind survive, then the Lord has built into the genetic code the ability to shift over here. If over on the other side it is going to prosper that kind, they're able to shift over there. But what you find with natural selection is once that shift happens, you have not increased information in the genetic code, you have lost information. Once you shift to the right, theoretically speaking, for survivability, now you're not able to shift back to the left for survivability. Much to do is made about bacteria. But hear me, don't ever fall prey to the arguments of bacteria. Whatever bacteria they're talking about, at the end of the day, it is still the kind of bacteria that it was at the beginning of the day or the beginning of the century or the beginning of creation. It is still the same kind. It is just variation within kind. And what that bacteria over at some extreme right position, right, what it has done is not evolve greater complexity, but it's lost information. It's lost the ability. It's actually become more fragile in the total environment in order to survive in a specific environment. Simply put, Dr. Purdom continues, the changes that are observed today show variation within the created kind. A horizontal change, not vertical. A horizontal change. For a molecules to man evolutionary model, there must be a change from one kind into another. A vertical change. A massive vertical change from a single-celled organism up to man. This is simply not observed. We have never seen a bacterium like H. pylori give rise to something like a dog. Instead, we simply observe variations within each created kind. Macroevolution requires an increase in information that results in a directional movement from molecules to man. Natural selection cannot be a mechanism for evolution because it results in a decrease in information and is not directional. Speciation may occur as a result of natural selection, but it only occurs within a kind. Therefore, it is also not a mechanism for evolution, but rather supports the biblical model. Natural selection cannot be the driving force for molecules to man evolution when it does not have that power, nor should it be confused with molecules to man evolution. It is an observable phenomenon that preserves genetic viability and allows limited variation within a kind. Nothing more, nothing less is a great confirmation of the Bible's history. They shall reproduce after their kind. Natural selection is real as far as survival of the fittest and God creating the ability for kinds to change within their kind for survivability, but it's not real at all. It's complete fiction. And this is, this is the fiction that Darwin pointed to there at the Galapagos Islands. Look, finches with different beaks. And the finches with these beaks are surviving and these are dying out. Behold, natural selection and proof of molecule demand evolution. Proof of vertical evolution, proof of macroevolution. No, it's not. It's microevolution. It's change within kind. Change within kind. Nothing else. The natural selection produced complex life myth is slain. The goo to you myth is slain. The molecule to man myth is slain. The goo to the zoo to you myth, which is the most fun, is slain. Because God's word is true. Let us make man in our image. Genesis 1.26. Proverbs 20.12. The hearing ear and the seeing eye, the Lord has made them both. How about the missing link? Slaying the missing link. I, I do want to slay the missing link. Don't you want to slay the missing link? Let's slay it together. How about Genesis 1, verses 11 through 13 and verses 20 through 25? You know what I would have you take note of in that? Which we're going to unpack that in weeks ahead. But what I want you to take note of is according to its kind, 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 over and over and over and over and over again, both for plants and animals, fish and birds, according to their kind. And they can have variation within kind, oh yes, but they will never ever go from kind to kind. Ever. There are no missing 
links. That's a myth. The Word of God is clear. The Word of God is true. That all life reproduces after its kind. And so there are no missing links. Again, Dr. Monty White says this regarding the missing link myth. Our English word for fossils from the Latin fossilis, which means something dug up. The present day meaning of the word fossil is a relic or a trace of past life preserved in the rocks. This can be a preserved hard part of the plant or animal such as a stem or leaf or shell or bone or tooth. It can also be a soft part such as skin or even excrement. Or it can be a trace made by the creature when it's alive such as a footprint. All the fossils that are found in all the sedimentary rocks are regarded together as the fossil record. I remember as a kid, the missing link chart on the wall there, only there was nothing missing. It was from ape to man. It was all present there. But you must know, surely, surely you do know, but let me say it just in case you don't, that that chart is a complete fiction. It's a complete fiction and all charts like it are complete fictions. There are no actual transitional species. All the links are missing. Charles Darwin proposed the gradual evolution of life forms over a long period of time. If this happened, you would expect to find this gradual evolution of one kind of life form into another kind to be recorded in the fossil record. Think about this, actually. The magic in this whole recipe is time, time, time. Transitional species would be everywhere because it takes a ton of time for them to go from one species to another according to their worldview and the theory of evolution. There'd be infinite number of transitional species. Really what you would have is most of the planet's surface would be covered with calcium deposits, not dirt, because there'd be millions upon millions upon millions upon millions upon millions upon millions upon millions of dead critters laid down over billions of years. Charles Darwin proposed the gradual evolution of life forms over a long period of time. If this has happened, you would expect to find this gradual evolution of one kind of life form into another kind to be recorded in the fossil record. However, this evolutionary account of one kind of life form changing into another kind is not recorded in the fossil record. There are many instances where variations within a kind are found, for example, different varieties of elephant or dinosaur, but there are no examples of in-between kinds. Both evolutionists and creationists agree that the intermediate transitional forms expected on the basis of slow, gradual change of one kind of creature into another kind is not found fossilized in the sedimentary rocks. In other words, the transitional forms are missing, hence the term missing links. Charles Darwin himself realized that his theory was not supported by the fossil record, for he wrote in his Origin of Species, quote, The number of intermediate varieties which have formerly existed on earth must be truly enormous. Why then is not every geological formation and every stratum full of such intermediate links? Geology assuredly does not reveal any such finely graduated organic chain, and this perhaps is the most obvious and gravest objection that can be urged against my theory. And all of God's saints said, Amen, with the exception of, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The most urgent and gravest objection to his theory is the truth of God's word. But second to that, the fact that God's creation agrees with God's word. And there are no transitional species. When Charles Darwin penned these words, he attributed this absence of transitional forms to what he called the extreme imperfection of the fossil record. Since that time, however, literally millions of fossils have been found. But still, the transitional forms are absent. The fossil record does not show the continuous development of one kind of creature into another, but it shows different kinds of creatures that are fully functional with no ancestors or descendants, which are different kinds of creatures. Slaying the missing link myth. Now we could go on and on slaying the myths of atheism, giant atheism and giant naturalism and giant Big Bang cosmology and giant evolution and all their little brothers that have grown up behind them. But you must understand that one little word shall fell them. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. All true science will comport with that truth, God's truth. If it is not in agreement with Genesis 1-1 and all that follows, it is not true science. It is 
science falsely so called, as we warned of last week, 1 Timothy 6.20. Let God's word be true, dear saints, and every man that would contradict it a liar, and most certainly Charles Darwin a liar, with motive, much motive. Will you let Jesus interpret Genesis 1-1, or will you let Charles Darwin interpret Genesis 1-1? That's really what it comes down to. Will you subjugate your heart and mind to the God of Scripture or to giant atheism, giant naturalism, giant Big Bang cosmology, and giant evolution? Oh, saints, let us not cower on the field of battle, but pull the sword from its sheath and slay these giants with one little word. Genesis 1-1. Let's pray. Father, would you thank you for the clarity and power of your word, sharper than a double-edged sword. We thank you that all of creation comports with your word and all true observations of your creation, all true science comports with your word. We are thankful for the men and women who have given their lives to the study of your creation, Father, to declare your glories from the very first verse of Scripture and from every evidence in your creation. For indeed, the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament shows his handiwork. And all of God's saints said, Amen.